Hello, and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and this week, the 10th week of the Donald Trump presidency, I will, as always, be bringing you the worst and weirdest stuff he has to offer. Why do I do it? Because, say it with me, this is not normal. And now everyone at the gym thinks you're a weirdo because you just said this is not normal while you're on the treadmill. Let's get to it. You know who I don't talk about enough on this podcast? Mike Pence, Vice President of the United States. The Washington Post this week wrote a a lovely profile of his wife, and it included an interesting tidbit from a, a 2002 story. Apparently, Pence doesn't eat alone with any woman except for his wife. I guess he's too scared that the woman might start choking on a piece of food, and then, like any gentleman, uh, he would presumably do the Heimlich maneuver, and while he is doing the Heimlich maneuver, of course he's scared that his penis might slip inside her vagina. It could happen. You never know. And while it's fun to make fun of Mike Pence for this stupid practice, and and I pity him for all the the interesting conversations he'll never get to have. It's important to understand the impact habits like his has on women's lives. Uh, Pence was a a congressman and a governor and is now vice president. And if you're trying to build a career, having a genuine one-on-one conversation with someone like Pence can be a a life-changing moment. And Pence has cut off half the population from having conversations like that. And he's not the only one. This is an incredibly common practice among evangelical Christians. And it's not really about keeping these guys away from temptation. It's about keeping women out of spaces that they believe should be reserved for men. And it works. If you can't have meetings with men who are in important positions... That is going to be a drag on your career. You know, this story, I, I think really like all the stories I cover on this podcast, it's a story about values. Mike Pence has shitty values, and that has real consequences for women. And he is at the very least consistent about this because it's not just about hurting women's professional development. Uh, it's about hurting them in every aspect of their lives. And here's a, a story from The Hill uh, from today, March 30th. Vice President Pence on Thursday cast a tie-breaking procedural vote that allowed the Senate to move forward with an effort to nix an Obama-era rule that blocked states from defunding health care providers for political reasons. All right, that's not the most clearly written lead in the world. Essentially what it's saying is that Republicans were trying to pass a bill that would let states defund Planned Parenthood. That's the goal here. And, and this was one procedural step, uh, an important step in the process. They were tied at 50-50, and Pence voted for the bill to move forward. And, and every bill like this is about controlling women, about not allowing them to live the lives that they want to lead. It's about punishing them for having sex. It's what it is. Just like refusing to meet with a woman who isn't your wife is punishing her for... I don't know, making you think about sex. So in the future, I'm going to keep a a better eye on Mike Pence because he's garbage. Huge news broke today. The New York Times had a blockbuster story. Uh, You'll remember from last week that Devin Nunes 
the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee had super secret information from government whistleblowers that was going to vindicate Trump's claim of being wiretapped by Obama. Well, the New York Times story, and of course, you can find a link to that story on our website, thetrumpscorecard.org, as you can find links to all the stories I cover, had uh, the story had a number of important revelations. First, the information Nunes got was from White House staffers, specifically National Security Council staffers. Second, one of those staffers used to work for Nunes on the Intelligence Committee. The other staffer was a protege of disgraced National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who, as I was writing this segment, announced he would be willing to testify on Russia in exchange for immunity from criminal prosecution. That's how quick these stories move. It is really hard to keep up with this podcast, let me tell you. Uh, Third, the intelligence did not include wiretaps of Trump, so it did not vindicate his lies about Obama wiretapping him at all. And fourth and finally, what the wiretaps were were uh, taps of foreign officials talking about Trump, basically wondering what they could do to to get in good with the administration. Um, If I were them, I would personally recommend uh, uh, buying memberships into Mar-a-Lago. Now, maybe you don't trust this New York Times reporting. Maybe you uh, believe Trump tweets like this one. If the people of our great country could only see how viciously and inaccurately my administration is covered by certain media. But this report confirmed what pretty much everyone in official D.C. already believed. So now Nunes is done. I don't know if he'll be forced off the committee, which he certainly should be. Uh, I don't know if he'll resign from Congress, which he definitely should. But either way, he has zero credibility to investigate this administration. He is doing everything he can to protect Trump. So any investigation led by Nunes is now pointless. If you're a regular listener, you know I usually interview an expert on one issue. But because this was my 10th episode, I thought I'd do something a a little bit different this time. Uh, Instead, I asked people to call me with questions they had about Trump. And the first call, which came before this big news broke, was about the different investigations into Trump's ties with Russia. Uh, All the calls I had to edit down a little bit for length. Just wanted to let you know that. But uh, let's go to the phones. Hi, I'm talking with Virginia from Winchester, Virginia. That's right. Virginia from Virginia. That is amazing and awesome. Did you move to Virginia because your name was Virginia? So you assumed it was your destiny? No, I actually would never have done that because of getting my name abbreviated for the rest of my life. But here I am. Here you are. B-A-V-A. Um, so, Virginia, what's your, what's your question you wanted to ask? The House Intelligence Committee versus the Senate Intelligence Committee, there's so much focus on the House Intelligence Committee because of Nunes doing whatever it is that Nunes is doing, but God knows what Nunes is doing. But I've been sort of in the background paying attention to the Senate Intelligence Committee, and it seems like Burr and Warner actually have something of a grip on reality. I mean, they're supposedly going to be talking to Sally Yates. They're going to be talking to Jared Kushner. So why is the focus so heavily on the House Committee? Um, I think it's because they, I think you have it right. I think it's because they've been making news. I really think it's that. I think that because, you know, there was the public, um, the public hearing with Comey and Mike Rogers, the head of the NSA, uh, and Jim Comey, the head of the FBI. Um, and that was a very newsworthy hearing where Comey 
said straight out that the Justice Department is authorized to say that they, they have been investigating links between the Trump campaign and, and the Trump transition and, and Russia. So that was a, a big news event. And then, of course, Nunes kind of lost his mind, apparently, over the last few days, held that crazy press conference in front of the White House. We have no idea what his source is or what they said. We It seems to be serving two purposes, what he did, which was to distract from the Russia investigation and to back up Trump's, you know, I've been calling it like a bonkers claim about Obama wiretapping him, which Nunes muddied the waters without actually proving anything like what Trump had said. And it seems like Nunes is really protecting Trump and, and not and failing at his duties at the Intelligence Committee. I hear that, but like the Senate committee is out here and they're actually making noises to actually do something. You're right. People should be paying more attention to the Senate committee. I think one of the reasons that the House committee has been getting more attention is that the Senate committee, and they and they have explicitly said this, um, that they are going to take this slowly and they're going to be more deliberate about it because the Senate is famously more deliberative. I'm not super hopeful about the Senate Intelligence Committee finding. Um, I don't particularly trust Burr. He doesn't seem like as much a clown as Nunes. I mean, it's hard to be as much of a clown as Nunes is, but he is a Trump guy through and through. Um, so I'm not going to put a ton of hope in Burr holding an independent, thorough investigation because I think he is biased. We'll see what happens. I mean, I think he and Warner do want to take this seriously, but I, I am worried about Burr's bias. So I think it's vitally important to have an independent commission or a special prosecutor, someone who is truly independent, nonpartisan, running the show or, you know, a bipartisan commission uh, with its own staff separate from current committee staff to really look into this in a way that I don't think either of these committees can do. And and I would tend to agree with you. I just think that what it's going to take in order for that to happen is something a little more concrete. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire and like you can't breathe for the smoke. But somebody's got to <laughs> right. find I mean, I hear what you're saying about Burr, and I absolutely agree. But, you know, is it going to come out of the FBI? I mean, Comey, come on. I mean, where is that little bit of fire that it's going to take to get either a select committee or an independent commission? Where is that going to come from? It, it's a With really good question. Team? And I think one of the problems is defining what fire is here. And that's really hard because people have different definitions, right? I mean, obviously, the White House is going to say... Is, would never admit that anything that happens is fire. Um, and I think also the expectations for what's going to come out of these investigations for some on the left is a little high, right? Like they they think that there's some people are expecting it to come out that Trump has, you know, been secretly plotting with Putin. And I, I don't think it, it, it the the truth is going to look quite like that. To me, there's enough smoke already, honestly, to, for to, to call for spe a special investigation. I mean, we have seen so many connections between the, the the Trump campaign and the Russian government. And then there, there are the actual hacks. I mean, that was actually fire. And then let's see where that goes, that investigation goes, and accept what those findings are, if we really believe it's independent. You know, I don't think it's going to be Putin is, you know, was calling Trump and was was uh, uh, laying out his campaign strategy and is telling him on a day-to-day -day basis what to do. I don't think it's going to look like that. But I think there's something going on. And I think, you know, it's it, there's certainly... Um, at the very least, there are people at the highest level of government influenced by people who don't have our country's best interests in mind. And that's a real problem. Let's talk about immigration. It's been a while. 
the Trump administration doesn't like it. This is from the Washington Post on March 27th. Attorney General Jeff Sessions on Monday threatened to strip some sanctuary cities of coveted Justice Department grants for state and local law enforcement, saying those places that did not comply with a particular federal law on immigration would not be eligible for money. Let's talk about what's at stake here. The Justice Department offers grants for cities and states to help cities pay for things like community-oriented policing, uh, making sure police are using best practices, and targeted programs like preventing violence against women. So, you know, whatever your feelings are toward law enforcement, these are programs that are designed, at the very least, to make police departments operate more effectively and even more fairly. And these departments depend on this funding. It helps them afford personnel, equipment, uh, important training, which of course frees up money for local governments to spend on other resources. And Jeff Sessions, who you may remember from earlier episodes of the podcast, is a terrible human being, now wants to take that money away from so-called sanctuary cities. And here's the thing about sanctuary cities. Conservatives make like to make a lot of noise about them. But they're not actually that big of a deal. Local officials, for example, can't stop immigration and customs enforcement from enforcing immigration law. They can't say you're not allowed in our city at all. Sanctuary cities just say, we're not going to go the extra mile to help you. We're not going to do the enforcement work for you. Uh, one common example, they won't hold arrestees longer because ICE wants to check their immigration status. And for that offense, they're in a position to lose all of their funding from the Justice Department. And it's not just DOJ funding that's at stake. Uh, this is really just the beginning. Trump has threatened to take all federal funding away from sanctuary cities. And that means taking money away from schools, away from hospitals, from highway projects, anywhere the federal government spends money. Just because the people who voted for Trump and a whole lot of people who work for him don't like immigrants. Every single president says he's going to fix the government. Every single one. They all start these big initiatives to reduce inefficiency and increase innovation. They're all going to get rid of the waste and finally, finally, finally make government accountable to the people. They all promise it, but somehow government waste and inefficiency still exists whenever they leave office. But this president, oh, this one is different, folks. He is a billionaire. He is a businessman. He doesn't have government experience to get in the way of his awesome CEO superpowers. Finally, we will have someone who runs government like a business. That's the holy grail, isn't it? Government run like a business. Because if you have ever worked at a for-profit corporation, you know that things are always run with 100% efficiency. Rewards are always, always given on the basis of merit and merit alone. There is no corruption in business. Only the pure cleansing fire of the profit motive and the free market, which make all good and fair and right in this world. Uh, so Donald Trump announced this week he's putting his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in charge of fixing government. 
Uh, like Trump, Kushner is a successful real estate developer. And also like Trump, Kushner's success has absolutely nothing at all to do with his father being a successful real estate de- developer. It's, a, it's just an amazing, amazing series of coincidences. It is. Look, if you think a 35-year-old real estate scion with zero government experience is going to transform the federal bureaucracy, honestly, I, I don't know why you listen to this podcast because I, I have nothing to, to offer you. Running government like a business isn't going to fix anything because government is nothing like a business. And let's be honest, most businesses have the same problems governments have. Of course, government has inefficiencies, and of course, we should try to fix them where we can. But it's run by people, human beings. There will always be inefficiencies. But of course, the real purpose of the Office of American Innovation, the office run by Kushner, it isn't to fix the government. It's to outsource it. It's being run by a business guy, and that means business interests will come first. Look for recommendations to privatize massive functions of the government, starting with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Trust me, someone is going to make big money off this. This is from Vox on March 28th. In a sweeping new executive order, President Trump ordered his cabinet today to start demolishing a wide array of Obama-era policies on global warming, including emissions rules for power plants, limits on methane leaks, a moratorium on federal coal leasing, and the use of the social cost of carbon to guide government actions. So Trump is essentially doing everything he can to get rid of every effort President Obama made to fight climate change. And he chose an incredibly symbolic setting to announce this this order. He invited coal miners to a photo op at the Environmental Protection Agency. And listen to what he told them. The miners told me about the attacks on their jobs and their livelihoods. They told me about the efforts to shut down their mines, their communities, and their very way of life. I made them this promise. We will put our miners back to work. But that's just not true. It's not regulations that are killing their jobs, certainly not in the greatest numbers. It's competition and technological advancement. The New York Times quoted the Brookings Institution's Mark Muro, who said, the regulatory changes are entirely outweighed by these technological changes, not to mention the price of natural gas or renewables. Even if you brought back demand for coal, you wouldn't bring back the same number of workers. One of the people who called me asked about the war on coal. So once again, let's go to the phones. And uh, I was joined in this call by a special guest who happened to be homesick that day from the first grade. Hi, I'm here with Rachel from Los Angeles and also Isabel's with us. Can you say hi, Isabel? Hello. Hi. So Rachel, what's your question for us today? So I had a question on Trump's war on coal. It's not his war on coal. It's our war on coal. The liberals. We're the ones who declared war on coal. Exactly. And I didn't really realize I was wrapped up in this giant war against, you know, natural resources that were, are they coming at me with, you know, pitchforks? I'm not really sure what type of war I'm engaged in with, with coal, but. My personal war on coal usually involves a backyard barbecue, but that that's a totally different that's thing. That's just weird. You're weird. You're weird. You're weird. Anyway, please, sorry, Rachel, continue. You're more weird. <laughs> that's okay. Um, so I wanted to know what you thought uh, about, you know, perhaps maybe what Trump's definition of the war on coal is, and if you think his tactics to sort of dismantle, um, you know, regulating climate change and regulating, you know, our environment 
if his efforts to stop all of that are going to effectively end this said war on coal. Well, I think you... I How does that even mean anything? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah, I know. Well, let me explain to you. Um, so ah. I, I think that you got it right. I think there isn't a war on coal. I think it's it's really a war on climate change, right? Like, I think they... I mean, Trump certainly didn't invent the phrase. And the idea is that there's that, that liberal policies to help the environment, um, instead of framing them as, uh, you know, a, a war uh, to, to help the environment, which is not very helpful for conservatives, they framed it as a war on coal and more specifically on coal miners and their way of life. And to be fair, like something has to change, right? Like coal is very, very, very bad for the environment. So conservatives started calling it a war on coal. And it helped them win places like West Virginia and, and Pennsylvania because, you know, coal miners, it's one of the few jobs left where, you know, blue collar workers can make a decent living. And that's something that that we do need to reckon with as we figure out how to switch to, to cleaner sources of energy. But no, I mean, I don't think I mean, so Trump said the other day, like, we're going to win this war and, and you're going to go back to work. And that's that's also a false promise because the the fact of the matter is that we're not going back to coal in any in in the numbers that we used to to produce it and that's not well, that really was because it, that was going to be my yeah that was going to be my next question is what sort of false promises is he actually making this time around because you know how many jobs is he really going to be bringing back with this said you know coal industry resurrection is that really going to bring back human jobs or is it going to be automated jobs or i mean what, i don't think what the is, problem is it Right. The problem is you can't really resurrect the jobs because it's not just about whether or not we pursue the right environmental quality. Is the real threat to coal jobs is cheaper natural gas. And it's more an economic force than it is environmental policy. So, you know, Trump deregulating the energy industry isn't about bringing back coal jobs, right? It is about um, making it easier for fossil fuel companies to spend less money protecting the environment. And Spicer did not answer yesterday, I don't believe, if, if he still thinks, or if Trump still thinks climate change is a hoax. So right. we're not Spicer's, sure what he thinks, right? <laughs> right. Spicer is, uh, there's one thing that Sean Spicer is very, very good at that I have to give him credit for, and that is not answering questions. So yeah, I mean, that it, it really is a, a real question, and I hope a reporter is able to ask Trump that soon whether he personally believes that man-made climate change is a reality. Because as far as we know, he doesn't. I mean, he he has said it's a hoax. He's never really come around on that. And we just don't know what he believes. And we know that his, you know, the head of his EPA, Scott Pruitt, the head of his interior uh, department, uh, Ryan Zinke, um, and the head of his energy department, um, uh, Rick Perry, all these folks... These are, if not outright climate deniers, at least people who say things like, oh, the science is still being contested, which it isn't, uh, you know, or we have to focus more on economics, not realizing that nothing is going to have as big an impact on our economy as climate change. It's going to have a huge impact on our economy. And fighting it now is good for both the environment and for our economy. We do have to worry about people in in sectors like coal mining where, where we have to figure out how we can protect these people's livelihoods, but that's going to be an issue anyway. And that's an issue across all kinds of uh, uh, sectors and, uh, you know, manufacturing where, where, where. The fact that Trump's the president is an issue. That's the biggest issue, obviously. <laughs> um, we have to, you know, we, we have to, you know, 
we say that we're shipping jobs overseas and that's an issue, but it's not nearly much an issue as automation is. Let's take these jobs away. So what do we do about these sorts of jobs that are disappearing just as a result of of changing technology? I mean, think about the trucking industry. Trucking industry is another one of, of the few jobs left that's a, you know, really good paying blue collar job. In 10 years, there may not be a, a, a trucking industry with human drivers of trucks. We're letting Donald Trump play in a big rig on the front lawn of the White House. That's that what we're doing a, about That was truckers. such a great moment. Izzy, Donald Trump like had a big rig come onto the uh, the White House lawn and he like got in it and he honked the horn and he 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 drove kind of like like he was like pretending to drive and he looked like a little kid like exactly what I would do for the record in a big rig if I had a chance to get in a big rig I would do exactly what Donald Trump is which is pretend to drive and honk the horn but he looked ridiculous I would look ridiculous too but I'm not the president <laughs> of the United States the president of the United States would look more weird because it's the president of the United States acting like a child yeah and because he's, like a three year old and because he's Donald Trump and he's kind of weird looking yeah. So the United States sells a lot of arms to other countries, and this is not my area of expertise. My personal area of expertise is being handsome on the internet. And so I'm not going to get into a big discussion about whether we should do this at all, uh, whom we should sell to, and what we should sell them. It's way, way out of my comfort zone. I think war is bad. I think weapons are bad. I, I want nothing but world peace. But... When the Obama administration decided to sell a bunch of F-16 fighter jets and other arms to Bahrain, uh, it put human rights conditions on that sale. And clearly that's something we should do a lot more of as a nation if we're going to be dealing arms at all. But at least in this one case, we tied this sale to improving human rights conditions. Baby steps. Only the baby just took a big old step backwards because, as the New York Times reported on March 29th, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is dropping those conditions. And the Times says, The decision to drop the human rights assurances as a condition of the sale is bound to be read by Saudi Arabia and other states in the region as a sign that the new administration plans to ease its demand to protect and respect political dissidents and protesters. So Tillerson is sending a signal that human rights violations are not going to be a problem for, for this administration. And, and Tillerson isn't the only one sending the signal. Uh, this is from Reuters on March 30th. The United States diplomatic policy on Syria for now is no longer focused on making the war-torn country's president, Bashar al-Assad, leave power, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations said on Thursday. Nikki Haley, in a departure from the Obama administration's initial and public stance on Assad's fate. So Assad is a dictator who has murdered hundreds of thousands of his own people. And keeping him in power is, of course, a top priority for, wait for it, Russia. And now it's more or less American policy, too. I wonder how that happened. I have one more call I want to go to, and it's about an issue a lot of you are probably dealing with as we face this deluge of news every single day coming out of the Trump White House. So listen in. I've got Anna Marie from Wilmington, North Carolina on the line. Hi, Anna Marie. How are you doing tonight? I'm well, Jesse. How are you? I'm good. So what's your question? As I tweeted at you last night, I just feel this 
sense of existential dread all the time, and I don't know how to handle it, you know, to just go about living my life with this regime. The first bit of advice I have is to to stop listening to my podcast ever, because, of course, it's going to make it much worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's really hard, and I think a lot, a lot of people are dealing with that. Um, I know that I am. I literally, after he was elected and before he was inaugurated, made an appointment with my doctor and said, you know, this is too much for me to handle. I need some medication. And I, you know, I mean, I've, I've dealt with anxiety and, and depression before, and this was too much. It, 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 it took it over the line to be too much. So yeah. if you're a person who has had those issues before and hasn't seen a physician about it or needs like your medication adjusted, you know, I, I do, I do recommend like if people are feeling severe, severe anxiety, talking to a therapist or a doctor about it, because I got on Lexapro and it helped. Um, the other thing I found helpful is doing this podcast. I mean, I know it's kind of crazy because it means I'm spending a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like I have to pay attention to all the news um, and that can be frustrating, but it helps. I mean, it, it, it makes a difference for me to, for having like an outlet. Right. Uh, uh, to, so I think that, that having some outlet, whether it's just being on Twitter and complaining or meeting with friends to talk about it or having a good friend who you can text back and forth, like, I can't believe you did this thing. Or for some people, it's getting into fights online may make them feel better. I, I personally am not into that, but it may make some folks feel better. But it's really hard. I mean, I think the main thing is you need to understand that everyone's feeling this way. Like a yeah. lot of people are feeling this way. And it is a legitimate feeling. It's extremely legitimate. I mean, it, it, you should be scared, right? Because we don't know what he's going to do. Exactly. And this is why I say in every podcast, this is not normal, because he doesn't have that sense of democratic norms that holds him back. So it's, it's scary. I worry that Congress is not going to hold him accountable for anything. As long as Republicans are in charge, it, it certainly looks that way. And that gets to the other thing that you can do, which is... Uh, work and work and work and work to elect Democrats in 2018, because if there's any chance that we can capture the House from them, and remember, we did gain a, a few seats last year, even though things turned out really badly for, for Democrats on election night, we did gain a few House seats. So if we win a few more gerrymandering suits and, and some lines get redrawn, who knows what could happen? So work, work, work. If we can win back control or just start you know, convincing Republicans that they really need to start holding him accountable... Um, that can make a big difference. So I think obviously that's probably the best thing to do is is try to channel that anxiety into action in any way that you can. I am I'm doing that as best as I can. And I thank you for doing the podcast. Appreciate that. And um, thanks for taking my call. As always, I'm going to end on our president doing something dumb. And I think this one might be my favorite yet. Listen to this. This live television. It's always live for me. You know, unfortunately, other guys say, make a speech, nobody cares. With me, everything's live. Uh, one mistake, and it's no good. But we just can't make mistakes, right? So we don't make mistakes. Go ahead, Ken. I'm Chuck Canterbury, the National President of Fraternal Order of Police from South Carolina. D did you catch that? We don't make mistakes. Go ahead, Ken. Uh, I'm Chuck. That may be the most classic Trump moment we have seen since Inauguration Day. Those are the moments keeping me sane. That's it for another redonkulous week from a redonkulous president, but at least we're not dead yet. 
Uh, I want to thank Virginia from Virginia, Rachel and Anna Marie for calling in with their questions. Let me know if you enjoyed those segments or, or if you didn't, so I know whether or not I should do it again. As always, you can reach me via email at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com or on Twitter at Jesse Burney. You can and should like our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. And of course, you can find links to all the stories I talked about in the podcast on the website at thetrumpscorecard.org. It also has information on how to subscribe if you're not a subscriber or if you want to tell your friends to subscribe, which you should do. Whether we like it or not. Whether you, what did I say? Whether we want it. Whether we want it. Whether we like it or not. The Trump Scorecard is written, edited, hosted, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. Normal.